41. Naked under the stars. The sentinel shimmers, tall and lean, transfiguring to a man. Like that tree, he is naked. In that luminous shapeshift, he pulls me close and kisses me. My body arches and bends. Your scent, Thomas. You move toward me, hunger in your eyes. Be a good mother for your soldier. You reveal my breasts, suckling one and then the other. Thomas, I carry our child. I reach for you. You hold me back. You are my soldier, my own lost love. Let me love you again. Open your eyes, he says. Naked under the stars, pinpoints of light, rich velvet canopy. I am trembling. I want to touch you, run my fingers from your neck to your chest. I reach for you, I caress you, you stir for me. I close my eyes, and when I open them, you are hard and proud next to my mouth, scent of Thomas. I breathe you in, intoxicating. I taste one drop. I am undone. I take you in, soft and deep. I release you, and I breathe. You moan, sonorous intoning. A song I've heard before. myself. This is not Thomas, nor the wary sentinel. You look down at me. Your eyes flash green lightning. You rise tall, long and hard, then shower the sky with bright milky stars. I wake, I am in bed, I am naked, around my neck a pierced muscle shell on twisted bark string filled with fresh moss and a flower of flannel, bright milky star. Thomas has visited me. Thomas has left me again. I am calm. I am hollow. I ache for him. I do not weep. I rise. I release. I wash. I caress my body. I taste of smoke. 
42. I want to curl inside. My cold, dead Thomas. Head shattered. Face mashed. I kiss your icy hand. Your lips slashed, torn from your face. Bones shattered. A swollen, blackened lump that is my lover's face. I pull back the linen. Body pale and perfect. I touch your chest. Nipples one on one. I kiss the little hollow where your ribs meet. Where we would meet. Where I would hide. Now an icy cave. I want to curl inside. I kiss the line of hair from belly down to cock. Asleep. Folded. Resting. Frozen father bird. You are dead. Our ship leaves. This is my goodbye. Sail on. Fly on tonight, my precious darling bird. Forty-three. Alone, in chains. And then I left, Meg. I left him behind. The Marine Corps will bury Thomas in Portsmouth. Or if I prefer, transport his body to Folkestone. There would be passage for us both. I ask for paper and pen. I write a letter to his mother, to my parents. I place them with Thomas's body. Yes, he would be coming home. She can bury him in the churchyard at St. Ainsworth, where we were married. Footfall crunching in the snow. I glance back. Two sets of tracks. Signs of our returning. I do not write that I will not be with his body. I retain my passage on the Prince of Wales. Without Thomas. Yes. Woman alone. Certainly. Many women on this journey. Some. Alone in chains. Yes, I'm perfectly all right. Wives of other Marines with whom to commune. Thank you. Thank you. 
I smile bravely. All right. I entertain thoughts of mixing and mingling. My stomach turns. I never would manage that. I never could. Always on the outside. Used to that. Yes, very kind. Thank you. Perfectly all right. Certainly. I will survive at sea. I glance up from our fire. A shooting star. Doroka. Bright fiery paths screaming across the sky. Man of stars. I know you catch it in your lens this night under a velvet sky. Forty-four, a journal of my own. Meg brings hot sweet tea this morning. Warabur. She sees that the inside of my hut is now in some disarray. White cards piled across the table and strewn across the ground. Lines and circles made with chalk. Cards in strange arrangements. The small table is covered in candle wax and stained with ink. Journals, notebooks scattered on the ground. Eliza, drink tea with me. I would make some space at the table. Yes, Meg, just leave the cards as they are, in their constellations, I laugh. Make a pile of the journals and I'll be dressed presently. I pull on one of Thomas's long shirts. I tuck it into my skirts. I see you made a seaboard journal. Would you read it to me? Oh, Meg, you already know some of the story. These are just jottings. I touch again that worn, familiar volume. My heart catches. I release a broken breath. It is my shadow lurking. I tried to keep a record just as Thomas would. His would have been filled with latitude and longitude and calculations of astronomical arrangements, conditions on the ship, status of supplies, so many critical points of information. I just scribbled a few lines on most days before I tried to sleep. I barely remember what I wrote. I've not yet reopened that notebook. A journal of my own. No, I fear there will be lines of piteous lamentation and of no entertainment. Read them to me, Eliza. Forty-five. Journey. May, 1787. 13th of May. Sunrise sky washed clean, clear, empty. 
numb, mute sky. I know they are all talking about me. Poor woman lost her lieutenant only yesterday. Strange, tall, solitary woman does not stay behind to bury him. She runs away to sea. Thirteenth of May, afternoon. As long as we are rolling away, far away, as long as I need not to speak, not to commune with blithe humanity, I am far away. The sun dares to shine. The insolence of that gentle breeze. Why has everyone been so kind? I am drowning in a silent dream. I am numb. I am fury storming. Grief, sorrow, loss, breaking in waves. I take mine to the sea. I take mine to the ocean. Today I sail into the wind. I too fly away. 14th of May. I look around and see I am within a fleet of sails, heading south, one of many. Everything rolls and rolls. Soon my body turns inside upon itself and hurls, hurls my pain into a pail. The sounds of retching all around, the acrid smell. Shock, grief, fury, waves of fury, waves of pain, vomit, shit, fever, my body emptying everything I ever loved, everything I wanted. 30th of May. We see land, the island of Madeira. No, don't stop, don't sight land. Never stop, roll on until we fall, fall off the globe that holds this ache, round and round until I fall inside this vertiginous clod of nullity. 46. An intimate stranger. Sometimes I feel no sadness, Meg. Only doubt and regret. How I had changed. Sip your sweet tea, my sister. Read to me. Thirtieth of May. It was just a short season of desire. It was so new. A few feverish months, Thomas. I dragged you into this, 
I talked you into marriage. I teased you into bed. Oh, that I had never desired you. That our innocence still bound us. That we had remained fast and loving friends. Ideas and imagination. Not my wanton body, weak and bounding out of control. That I had kept my passion under rein, my own shadow. Would you then, my Thomas, still be with me? My body was awakened, playful, dominant and controlling, reckless, arrogant woman, and now your life is lost. I've lost my love, wretched woman, slave to my body's urges, now with child, where now my cherished freedom. I had become for you a stranger, just an intimate stranger. First of June. From some drugged sleep, I start awake at night. Screams of a dying animal, agony on and on, a nightmare wretched. At dawn, I know it is the throes of birthing. Then the lull and the strangled, startled cry of the newborn. Here. The 2nd of June. I am awakened to my own condition. My gnawing child unborn. A breath of Thomas locked inside me. I cradle my belly. I stand on deck and shake loose my hair. I roll and twist my stiff body to life again. Stillness under a calm summer sun. 47. We were never mystery. Oh, Meg, I swear by these stars that our last night together was one I remember with wonder. My beautiful soldier was a king among men. I was his queen. <laughs> no surprise then that you can yearn once more, Eliza. I recall now our last night. Brave young soldier rises for his Eliza. He hungers, urging caresses. He pulls me to our bed. I turn to see him standing proud. Arms spread wide. Our love is fire. An adoring man of stars. He smiles with such desire. He suckles me. Both breasts. He kisses me deeply. He has learned to be my king. His hands, his fingers, his tongue, 
find me with such skill. His dance of desire, so powerful, determined, triumphant. He turns to me and holds me to his heart. We were never mystery, one unto the other. Eternal, no beginning, no end, no middle, no fall. Forty-eight, can you keep a secret? Thomas did not know I was with child. I wanted to tell him, Mick. I waited. I kept waiting for the right time. We'd never planned or dreamed of this. I know I am with child, perhaps at five weeks from conception. I know I do not bleed when the new moon rises. My breasts are tender, deliciously tender, bursting into ripeness. My body is flowing with ichor, rich and intoxicating. I do not share this news with you, Thomas. You still unsure of your role as husband, uncertain of your duty as soldier. Indeed, you are not yet fearless as a lover. You, my beautiful soldier, my handsome young prince. You would be overwhelmed. I feel certain of that. There is plenty of time. Yes, and to imagine that you might discover the changes in me, that your fingers will find my breasts more tender, that this knowing is a boost to your pride and courage. Ah. Thomas, that you too could feel the thrill surging through my body as you kiss me. That you would come to know me, come to know us. Would you know? Would you ever come to know? We can wait. I can wait. Can you keep a secret? I don't suppose you can. You mustn't laugh. You mustn't cry. But do the best you can. Forty-nine. Journey. June 1787 June the 4th to the 5th I try to ride the rolling gladness of the other women 
In groups we board the longboat to walk on land at Tenerife. Thomas still caught inside me. I murmur silently to you. A feast day, guns saluting. I still can barely speak. 7th of June, I cover dull grief and find some words. A forced, faint smile, the women my new kindred. Alien, all, yet so kind. Masking of my feeling well in check, they unwind and ease closer to me. Head high, I rise. Widow, woman of broken mind. Ninth of June. We're at sea again, a peaceable camaraderie intact. I'm through the storm, like this calm and shining sea. Perhaps the worst behind me, my joy buried deep inside me, turning sailing between two islands to the open sea. Fifteenth of June. We cross the line. I cross the line. I observe the usual ceremony of water, oil and barber's knife. <laughs> Hilarity, taunting, ritual. How you would have hated these moments, my dear one. Tropic of Cancer. Strange and cruel line. June 20th to 30th. Most days there is rain and it softens my heart. I too can cry. Weep in the rain for you, Thomas and to jolt me awake and onward. A display of thunder and lightning, how we both would revel in the current coursing through us. 50. Journey, two weeks in July, 1787. The first of July. And in the night it comes again, rolling reels of echoing pain. It strangely calms my aching heart to hear that woman screaming. Then that sweet and startled cry, just before dawn. Another baby born. A new one bound for a new land. 2nd through July. Clear, crisp wind on deck, and I loosen my hair and watch for hours the changing light of sky and sea. I see dolphins leaping. My heart leaps with them. 
I used to be. Another child delivered on board. That's three. And yet me. Twelfth of July. A death. A baby nine weeks old. Born just days before we left Portsmouth. Failure to thrive at sea. Thomas, I promise you we will thrive. We all gather to mourn and mark the passing. I am not prepared for this ritual. A burial at sea. 13th to 15th of July. Precious bundle. Sliding down into the deep. A torment in my dreams. Others knocked off kilter, take to liquor, an unease after tragedy, in a space so confined. Then we cross the equator, another line I pretend to be gladdened by. I should have stayed to bury you. I could not stay bury you. I ran away. I ran away. I ran away to see oceans of grief and fury. But you abandoned me. Fifty-one. I may have slowed you on your path. Meg, I whisper as once again we sip Warbora around the fire. I could have saved him. Sweet Eliza, do not discomfort yourself with these regrets. Her soft, knowing eyes on me as I read. And if I'd stopped you, if I'd jumped from our bed, if I'd stood and barred the door, you're not leaving, Thomas. This you must stay and hear. I am with child. You will be a father. Your queen is with child. Come and kneel before me. Come kiss the royal belly. Come and feel our royal air. You are to be a father. I may have slowed you on your path. Would you still have left me there? short delay, twist of fate, altered time, different space. Fifty-two. 
journey. Last week's in July, 1787. Fair weather. I find I go on deck as I am able. I like to watch the men reel in fish, sometimes big as half a table length. Such fertile waters. Thomas, like a tiny, tumbling starfish, I feel our baby move, here on equatorial sea. 24th July. Such fair weather. Then a jolly boat slips from its booms and with heavy speed slides and smashes into a woman violently to the head. She falls hard with the force, senseless. Alive or dead, no one can tell. Life, then calamity as we sail. The 28th of July. Heavy rain lashes our ship with a swirling, violent wind. Days and long, unbroken nights. The creaking and the coursing of our ship is discomposing. Yet I feel our baby, Thomas, tumbling deep inside of me, rolling in these giant seas. You needed pens and paper. I should have known. You are always scribbling. Tomorrow we will leave. Who knows when or where you will next find your supply. And we never disagree. Always one to another, we allow all the space we need. We are kindred. I never question your motives, your needs or deliberations. Our visions and our dreams, our shared passion for ideas, you allow my freedom. Thirtieth of July. The poor woman convict has died of the injury to her head. Another burial at sea. Ceremony still somber. So alone, hapless one, sliding down into the deep. As the sun, giant fiery disc is wheeling, slipping beyond our horizon. Fifty-three. Journey. August and September, 1787. Early August. After such a tumult, several days of calm, I begin to breathe. I feel our baby sailing with us. I did not yet share this with you, Thomas, but I have fashioned a tiny blanket for the babe. Each day I make stitching and rosettes embroidered. 5th of August. We make land at Rio Janeiro. We are 12 weeks from Portsmouth. Our baby, I calculate, is 25 weeks grown. 
my belly is rounded. I have a yearning to stitch and sew and fashion layers for me and for our babe. It calms me. Sixth of August to September the third. Forgive me, Thomas, but I begin to feel gladdened. We walk about in this foreign town, all manner of fresh fruit and food to delight my appetite and to feed our darling babe. I feel a glimmer returning to my heart. Fourth of September, we are at sea again. One more baby delivered to a marine while we were ashore. Darling daughter is their blessing. I feel so refreshed, Thomas, and the sky is vast and clear, the breeze gentle. If only you were with me now. Somewhere in mid-September, my bed takes on the feeling of a nest, my dear. I unpack and repack our trunk and lay out the tiny makings that I have fashioned for our babe. The weather is fair, but sometimes it rains. My belly is round with your baby. End of September. I feel safe in my nest with so much of you here with me, Thomas. The winds sometimes howl and rain can sweep across our boughs, but I am cocooned here. I sleep strange hours. I wake when I feel our baby move. Fifty-four. Journey. October 1787. Sixth of October. Another baby delivered. A son to a convict woman. I had not ventured that so much life would begin before we reach our destination. I believe, dear one, that I feel that special love and softness that comes to mothers. It is upon me. I ask you for nothing. No grief, no regret. Only three words. I love you, that is all. I love you. Eleventh of October. The weather remains moderate and fair. We reach the Cape of Good Hope. I too feel hope, my beloved. Perhaps our baby will be born on this southern continent. Feet on the land of Africa. I have about five weeks remaining. October 15th. The wives of the other marines treat me with such kindness, 
I know I've been strange with grief as well as my usual pride and distinctness. This rolling belly, Thomas, I must accept their hand, their support. 17th of October. Another birth. We came to smile on one another, this wife of a Marine. We, both round and ready to deliver. This time a daughter. I rejoice in her blessing. We gather close to see the baby, pink and round and rosy. Fifty-five. Journey. November 1787. The 12th of November. We have left Cape Town. I do experience considerable pangs as I wait. Round like a whale I wait for our baby to birth. Now we are at sea again. Somehow the rolling of these oceans is what our child will prefer. Yet I am weary. 20th of November. The weather is fair and the breeze light and fresh. I'm so restless and cannot find comfort in either movement or recline. I feel our baby must be born soon. Thomas, perhaps my calculations were not sound? 23rd of November. I cannot sleep. There is a different wind that blows. Another tragedy beset us when after sundown a seaman fell overboard from the main topsail yard. In such darkness he could not be found. We sailed on without him. 24th of November. I am ill at ease feeling in a kind of panic. This morning there was more tragedy when a convict woman was delivered of a dead child. Another bundle slides into the sea at sunset. I am heartsick and I cannot find release. 56 journey, late November 1787. 25th of November. I cannot find the rest my body needs. I walk in circles like a whelping bitch. The pain comes in waves, rolling ocean strong. The women gather to help me through. Hour upon many hours, pain rocking in waves like this ship. 26th of November. The women fuss around me, urging comfort and concern. The pain does not cease. I've had no sleep for many days. I'm lost. 
I feel no instinct for this birthing. My body has abandoned me to pain and no relief. Twenty seventh of November. It is still so very dark and the pain roars. I hear a mighty scream echoing through the room. It is me, Thomas. I am bearing down to birth our child and my body is splitting in two. The women are here to help me. It is so very dark. Waves and rolling waves, pain and loss. I purge it all. I purge horror. I purge love. I feel fury, like this storm. I would beat you, I would smash you, like those horses crush your heart, shake your body, claim my soul again. I am delivered of our baby, covered in blood like your smashed and bloody head, dear Thomas. I wipe away the color to see a little face it is sleeping. There is no cry, no breath. I look to the women. I shout something loud. I wait any moment, that jump of life. Our baby girl will gasp and cry. I shake her just a little. I hold her to my breast. She does not move. No startled cry, no breath, still warm, still quiet. Our baby sleeps so calmly, quiet at my breast. The women are speaking softly to me, some are crying. I ask for her blanket to keep her warm, safe. I hold our baby close to my breast, wrapped in her own blanket. My body, my breast will keep her warm and give her life. Fifty-seven. Journey, late 1787. I am rocking, holding her close to me. I'm weeping. I cannot stop rocking. I cannot stop weeping. I sing to her. She does not cry. Yet I name her. She does not breathe for me. Our baby Eileen, Thomas, is born and is now dead at sea. Twenty-eighth 
28th of November. Eileen is cold. Wrapped in her blanket, she is cold. Wrapped tight, a tiny bundle. They say she's ready for her burial at sea. There's no earth under which to bury her. She must fall, tumbling to the depths, cold, alone. that I do not jump overboard to join her tiny body, that I do not dive into the ocean, that I stay wailing among the women restrained by their knowing arms. I yearn to be falling with her, rolling, rolling to a deep sea bed. Twenty-ninth of November. The women stay with me. I sink into silence. Numb, mute sky. I know they are talking of me. Poor woman, lost her husband, lost her baby daughter, buried yesterday, strange, sad woman. So much loss, so silent. A baby born to the wife of a marine. Another baby born. A boy. A lusty cry in the dark of the night. My heart cracks in two and my milk comes down. So strong. Eileen's milk gushes in waves of release, soaking my clothes and linen. December the 8th. I am tended by the women. I do not drink or eat, but for what they spoon to me. I have no life in me to rise from bed. They lift my arms to wash me, remove my nightdress and sponge my aching, milky breasts. I have no life in me. Journey, December 1787. My breasts weep, my body aches. I am abandoned, I abandon me. You abandoned me, Thomas. You left and died on me. I am burning with a fury. Our baby born in blood. Your blood. Our child born. Born without breath. Cursing, restless pacing. I hold you close. Your body wrapped in swaddling. Made by your mother. I hold you to my breast. 
I wait to find the candlestick digging into my ribs. My baby is a wedding present wrapped in baby's linen. You ran from the mother of your child, Thomas, dashing unheedful through the rain, not looking, not seeing, not caring, one blind eye, hurrying, distracted, careless, stupid, stupid boy. You ran away and left me. Stupid, stupid soldier boy. My fury burns deep. It is you, Thomas, whom I blame. It is you whom I resent, you whom I hate. This music, fiddles, fife and drum, they make merry with this torment screaming from my heart. My wickedness destroys everything in my path. I recall now our last night. Poor weary soldier has to fuck dear Eliza. He must. Duty calls, almost distasteful, servicing his queen. One more time, one last time. You pretend your loyalty, pretend adoration, pretend enjoyment, pretend desire. You don't want to suckle me. You do not want to kiss. Your mind is absent. Your body does not feel me. This is an empty dance. At last you hiss into my pocket. You endure my loving touch. Then you turn. Turn away and leave. Fifty-nine. Journey. Late 1787. Storms rage. Cold wind bites. It cannot touch me as I scream fury into the dark. Wretched, empty widow raging. I would leap into these waves and find my sinking babe. There she is, rolling, smiling, her binding unraveling, arms floating free. I would dive deep and swim with you, sweet Eileen. We would frolic with these dolphins, catch a ride on a great whale. You grow fat on my mother milk. Your little hand a starfish. Your rosebud mouth opening to smile at me with joy. Your father was once a kind man. But he is dead. Your mother is a siren screaming luring all men to their demise. She has lost the power to call her lover back into her heart. 
on this tiny ship tossed in the ocean. She is darkness, utterly abandoned. Take your lips from my mouth and remember. Take your cock from my cunt, melting splendor. Take yourself from my body that I cleanse for you. Take your hands from my hips that I bend for you. Take your fingers from my spine that I arch for you. Take your eyes from my breasts when I dance for you. Take your heart that you left on the floor. Take your leave, take the stairs, take the door. I take my racked body to the women. I clutch at my aching breasts. I yearn to hold their babies, little ones. Suckle on my mother milk. Draw on me. I will nurse you. Let me hold a baby. Let me have your baby just for one long night. I meet their eyes. But the women turn from me. They try to be kind. They show pity at my wretched grieving my fiery eyes, my desperate pleading. I'm alone. My breasts are streaming, my belly empty, my baby tumbling in the raging sea. Sixty. Bright imaginings. Meg reaches for me. I know we are both weeping. She holds me close and soft and long as we breathe together. I wish I could have been with you as she strokes my hair. Tell me something more, Eliza, of your own childhood, your mother, your father. Ah, I am more like my mother than I care to admit. What my mother does not know for a fact, she adds with most magnificent flair and imagination. It is my father who is tied to fact and books and letters. He compensates for my mother's fanciful nature with exactitude. He delights in the plain, simple truth of numbers. He's a bookkeeper. He keeps books. He keeps us. When his best friend dies, he keeps his widow. Thomas's mother. 
We have a narrow house in Folkestone, but with the right arrangement of furniture, it is sufficiently spacious. There is a room for Thomas and his mother to share. There is room for all of us. Among the several establishments where my father is a bookkeeper, there is a school with a, an extensive library. Through his connection to the Quakers, my father gains permission to borrow books and return them after a short time. So begins a most marvellous tide of literature entering and leaving our house. I am to be found for hours, curled next to a window or behind a curtain or under a writing table, reading with great fervour. I've learned enough of the basics of Latin and French to improve my knowing. I have a gift for languages, my mother says. Before long, I'm reading books in French, learning as I go. I would tell anyone who cares to ask that I have read Locke, Diderot and Rousseau. In fact, I skim and skip and fill in the rest with bright imaginings. Ah, but the air is full of reformism. My father and his friends are caught up in the discovery of naturalism and in the adventures of expeditions on all the far oceans. From an early age, Thomas is determined to be one of those adventurers. His several role models are spoken of around the table. We read of meetings where their discoveries are celebrated. Our father attends many of these gatherings. Thomas and I devour these pamphlets and form a vision of our own. So, we first hear of new land in the southern seas. This is Thomas's dream before he turns 12 years old. It is my dream as well. Yet, for me, there are no women on whom to model my ambition to travel to new lands and become part of a reimagined society upholding principles of freedom and justice and equality. Yet as long as I am with Thomas, we will fill in all the gaps. That is what I give to him. Thomas is going to do everything necessary to join the Marines I'm going to do what is necessary to remain free of society's entrapments. Courtship, marriage, and all the associated parading and pretense. I am Eliza Swift, fierce and free. I will not be pulled into society and the church or anything at all in which I do not wholeheartedly believe. I will be able to broaden my mind, learn languages, and travel to the other side of the world. In truth, I am probably already peculiar enough to be ignored on all these points, but I am not going to leave it to chance. At any opportunity, I am quite outspoken about my opinions on reformism, 
Yet, before I can make my own way, I do, of course, have to contribute to the family's income. My father secures me a position as a governess, which means I need to leave home and live with a dreary family, teaching their dull children. My reprieve comes at the last moment when my mother announces that we'll be opening a dame school in the house. We'll take in children each day and charge a few pennies for their education. The kitchen is warm. Each morning we clear the table and prepare for the schooling. My mother is inventive like that. We begin our adventures in running a school for young children from our house. I teach reading, writing and numbers, a little French. But of course, once my mother starts regaling, her stories become wild, dream-filled adventures. The children never tire of her performances and I can ensure that they're learning their basics. My mother stands to tell her stories filling the room with bright imaginings. She summons the tales with her arms raised, palms facing her rapt audience. She draws them in and casts upon them a kind of spell, conducting the narration that before long turns to melody and song. It is mesmerizing. A power her power manifest. Sixty-one. Journey. January 1788. You remember the ferocious black storms of the last leg of the journey, Meg? Of course. It is after the detour to Van Diemen's land that Charles, my husband, dies. He has not been well, even before the journey. He is ten years older. We know the risks. You and Thomas are not alone in wanting to build a new future. You handle your grief with such grace, Meg. You're open with your loss. I watch you. I follow you and try to be like you. So kind and so good at caring for others. Eliza, you've lost a child as well as a husband, your lifelong friend. I also lose sight of my purpose and our vision. Long before our landing here, I'm heavy with darkness. For a long time, I also lose the ability to escape to my dreams. Please, read the last entries to me. It's the last month of our journey. January in the year 1788. You have learned how strong you are and what you can do. I am ripped in half. 
I'm rent in two. I'm lost on a ship on the ocean. Thomas in the ground. My baby in the sea. Yet this ship keeps on sailing. Sailing through these ragged storms. If I just stop. If I can sleep. She will take me where I need to be. All I need to do is sleep and rise and eat and drink. I can pace along the deck. I will wait for these heavy breasts to dry. I have no more strength to fight my rage. I can but let it go. Let everything go. Then maybe one night I will fly again in dreams. There, you have arrived. Now you fly again in dreams, Eliza. At times I even see your shining smile. You are through the storms and you know your purpose. Sixty-two. In the night, I hear you call. Feather soft kisses starting at my toes. Wings brush me, delicately soften me. Flesh and bone ascend my lower legs, finding every river of release. You lift me and deliciously stretch me, bone and muscles sliding into place, finding their length and their power. I am grounded by your touch. You kiss and caress my inner thighs, Taste flight in your warmth ascending. I know you know to follow gently along the silken lining of my wings. Thomas, is this you, my one? So softly you find your way, your lips find mine. Plump and pulsing for your touch. You follow slowly upwards, so gently that I yearn for you to find my shadowed secrets. Find me liquid for your lips. Move tenderly inside, my love, circling circling exploration and I rise arching to the sky your wings stroking my breasts 
together we saw Thomas, my one. You never learned this journey, never brought these pleasures. I would have shown you, whispered gentle guidance, words sacred and forbidden. But you left me. You flew away. Then who is this gentle bird of such knowing, such power? In the night, I hear your call. feathers bestowed upon my shoulders. I feel its warmth, soft, strong. Thomas has visited me. Thomas has left me again. I am calm. I am hollow. I ache for him. Do not weep. I rise, I release, I wash, I caress my body, I taste of courage. Sixty-three. The other side of time. Now you know my story, Meg. I will call you Bubu. You are the warm and wise night owl. Had you not been here in that first year, how lonely my dark spirit. How unguided my purpose in this strange place. The land of the Yura, the Gadiga. It is a comfort to share memories with you, Bubu. You will remember our first year together. I arrive quite in shock, as you must also be. The weather so black on the last leg, so wild. I spend the storms screaming into the dark. I do not pray, I never have. My soul just bellowing. And not for life, but for relief from torment. I don't believe I am afraid. I am summoning my courage from the dark. I am not weeping. All my tears have dried. 
I do not weep again, not until recently. So strange to weep again, and you, waking to find my pillow wet from dreaming. Ghost of a woman, I have lost my intention of what I am to do here, without Thomas, without our child, far away from all our plans, such bewilderment. I have run away, taken to the sea. I have come here for my freedom, for a future. A state of shock, no heart entire to grieve my loss. That ship would take me to the other side of time. Yet here I stand lopsided widow, bewildered under an antipodean sky. Indeed, there we are, two widows sharing the same tent. Ah, and you, Bubu, your husband lost at sea, my husband lost on land. Your kind eyes, your clever hands, I follow you every day, limping to the coast. We walk for many miles, searching, seeking, on the fringe, exploring the littoral zone. In time, we bring our baskets, collect cockles and whelks, smash oysters from the rocks. We venture inland, pick strange fruits, gather wild herbs. You seem to have a sense. You always have a purpose. You know what to do, where to go. And so, I follow you. I help when you deliver babies. I carry water, wood. I light the fire. I wash the linen. All the while, my hardened heart, dolent before these mothers, jealous of their babies, breathing, crying, feeding on their mother's milk. My breasts are long dry, my belly shrunken, finding its way back to my body as we walk and walk. We help to build and feed and heal this outcrop, clinging to the coast like a tiny cluster of limpets, clawing mute, ignorant, unwitting, despondent. Drums and bugles and scarlet soldiers. They leave us alone to find our own paths. Their grim focus always on the convicts, bent to pick and axe and saw. How they toil, following orders like the K-9 
caged animals that they seem glowering. Yet how those ragged prisoners grin at the summer sky, kept distracted by their orders to build and clear and grow. As I pass on my way to the coast, I know I begin to see a new hope glimmer in their eyes. I watch their dreams renew. Sixty-four. Death Spear. I wake to the urgent call of ravens. But it is not from my dream. No. This is human, female voices calling, distress, murder. They killed the gamekeeper. Wugan echoes, heightening the pitch. I rise, I release. I dress quickly. I go to the door. There is disquiet through the streets. The air is full of smoke. Heat is heavy. There is talk of murder everywhere. Murder and revenge. I head to the stream. Meg is there already. He was walking towards them. One hand held high. He kept walking. He was talking to them in their jabber. Then it came hurtling, hidden in the trees, a weapon, double barbed, a death spear, straight to the heart. I wait for the sky to shift, to lift, some change, some release, nothing. The air is charged with violence all around. Always violence in this scratched out town. Floggings, hangings, death and violence, revenge and retribution. Meg is silent. I know her thoughts. She knows we agree. I go inside and gather my hat, my basket, some meat and seeded bread. I must go to the point. I must find some relief. I must breathe. I must see the women. I will speak with the star man. Sixty-five. Everything solid with smoke. I take the eastern path to the promontory, 
through the clamor and the blue-gray smoke, ash and burning leaves all around. I feel sweat drip and slide from neck to breast to belly. I did not wash today. I know not if I taste sour or salty. Everything sullied with smoke. A welcome breeze stirs as I ascend the path. It will be clear on the point. Guru, Babugamali, Yanmamali. The air around the star man will not be charged gossip and hysteria. He will not be gripped by this fever. His passions run deeper, more fervent. He is not a man of violence or retribution. He is like Thomas, a man of peace and quiet contemplation. So alike, a few years older, a few years more training and experience. What brothers they would be. And Meg's husband, a trained soldier, yet skilled in carpentry since childhood. We find so few like-minded souls. What fast friends, united in purpose and vision, combining our skills and ideas for the better here on the land of the Ura. Ah, I sounded again. I remember words from the notebooks. Yura, people of this land. Land that we have cast upon and somehow claimed under a thin, fluttering pennant. Here on the shores of a harbor richer, deeper than we have ever known. The smoke catches at my throat, I cough. I breathe in deeply. Something snatches passage on my breath and sits there in my throat. Ash? Leaf? No, it, it moves. A frantic buzzing to escape. It is an insect lodged deep in my pharynx. I stop on the path, quite uncertain whether to swallow or to spit. I am suspended. Dear woman, are you all right? You stopped so suddenly. I look behind to see the captain. My mouth stuck open, caught in indecision. My twisted face a picture of distaste. I think, good sir, I've swallowed a fly, I croak. He laughs and says, what is it to be, spit it out or wash it down? We're a hungry colony, I manage to say. I'll take it for my breakfast. Here, my flask, rum and water, fit baptism either way, a seasoned panacea. I accept his flask and take a sip. It clears my throat, but for the memory, 
I vocalize and green in self-deprecation. He laughs and pats me lightly on the shoulder. For that moment, I forget my dread. I forget the violence, the air charged with panic and the thirst for blood. You are going to see the lieutenant, he asserts more than asks. My friend, he adds, there on the point, gazing out to sea. Ah, yes, it's far too early for the stars, I add. No, oh, Eliza, what dull entendre you summon for this glossy garuda. Indeed, very true. Walk with me, madam. I am to see him today as well. We climb the eastern path towards the promontory. Sixty-six, Yura. That is what I would say. You are, I believe, Mrs. Collins, asserts Captain Garada. He has spoken of you. You work with the Indian women, writing down their language. Commendable. I fear I make little progress with that endeavor. It is, though, a most captivating puzzle, one almost beyond me. I walk and watch for loose stones on the path. These Indians like to keep their mystery, don't you think? Captain, with respect, they're surely not Indians. India is, you will agree, a land, though Antipodean, far away from here. What would you have me call them, madam? Savages? Natives? Blacks? I fancy, sir, the people of the land where we walk here on this rocky slope are Yura. That is what I would say. Yura. A strange and simple word for a people so elusive and perplexing. We reach the flat, cooler summit of the point. Hail, friend. I knew I'd find you gazing out to sea. What? No Indians with you today? The place is quite deserted. Captain, Mrs. Collins, says the man of stars. Yes, the smoke, this heat. Anyone with sense is resting or sitting in the shade. I found Mrs. Collins on the path. Early dinner, she swallowed a fly. I'm perfectly recovered. I add, thank you. Yes, I had hoped it would be clear here on the headland. Elsewhere below, there is quite a clamor. Yes, yes, which brings me to my business with you, Lieutenant, says the captain. I fidget with my basket, caught between my intention to seek solace here or to find shade under the nearby trees, perhaps to recover to take some refreshment. I have some meat and seed bread if you would both like to partake, 
I venture. Seed bread, how exotic. From the Eura, Mrs. Collins? The captain scoffs. It is a recipe we learned from some Garigal women, Captain. My friend, the midwife, she... Excellent, let me try. I will give you my opinion. Lieutenant, sit, relax. We will taste this seed bread. It is actually a mix of flour, nectar, seed and berries. I think, Lieutenant, you might recognise burung with a little warada and yagali with seeds of wadanguli. But burung fruit are not edible, Mrs Collins, frowns the man of stars. Indeed, but we have learned to crush and soak them, waiting for the toxin to leach from the fruit. Then we dry them and grind them on stone to add to our flour. The captain looks to the star man. The star man looks to me. I think I see a touch of pride. I think he almost smiles. To the observatory then, says the man of stars. We shall break our fast. Sixty-seven. Retribution. You will have heard of this uh, business with the gamekeeper, continues the captain. There is a plan, indeed a plan for justice, retribution if you like. What plan, says the starman? Well, I must say that it seems dastardly, though it is now much improved thanks to my modest powers of persuasion. What is the plan? Tomorrow we march on Gamai, announces the captain, proud of his vernacular. Yes, we are to bring back not ten, but six. We are to capture six Indians in retribution for the gamekeeper's murder. Six people for one man. Yes, the commander asserts that it's uh, high time for a lesson. More pain now, and that will be an end to this business of killing unarmed men. It makes no sense. How would you capture six men? Well, we take a company of 46 men and surround their village in darkness. I can't see how that will work, Captain. The pincer movement, Lieutenant, he says, touching the side of his nose and continuing in one fluid opening gesture. And you, my friend, will be in the forward line with the compass, as always, counting steps, making sure we stay on track. I'll be leading the men. We'll camp overnight and bring them back the next day. This captain truly is the image of the glossy, preening and clever black cockatoo, Garda. I can't possibly leave my work, says the starman. Please take someone else. And there, precisely, the distinguished, the quite individual, wedge-tailed eagle, Boromiri. Nonsense, Mrs. Collins here will take care of your Euro speakers, won't you, Mrs. Collins? 
Stars won't go anywhere for one night, my friend. He pats Boromoring on the shoulder. All warmth, all charm. I see the star man shrink from his touch. At any rate, old friend, it's an order. Double rations. We leave tomorrow at this time. The long and the short of it. I'll be off now. Dinner with the commander. Sixty-eight. Colours of this land. I work late into the night, a hot and heavy night in December. Finally, I complete the notebook duplication using the last of my candles. I am spent. I am joyous. I wake with a start. The air is still loaded, waiting for a storm. Birds everywhere exhorting the news. Get ready, get ready to fly, they seem to say. Today is the day. I rise, I stretch, I yawn, I release. I loosen my shoulders, I wash. I smell of feathers, I taste of coal black ink. I am heavy with moonlight. I am empty with relief. Dressing quickly, I grab my hat and basket, a lump of meat and some seed bread. At my table, I caress the notebooks. Small, so beloved in their navy blue jackets. I place his notebooks with my copy, larger, newer. I stare into the water-worn pebbles at the cover for my work. Colours of this land, purchased in Portsmouth. I put my second copy back in the trunk, along with my tear-stained sea journal. I tear the stiff brown paper in half and wrap three notebooks for the Starman. When I arrive on the headland, the women are gathered in the shade, away from the open ground. The starman is with them. Their voices are urgent, hushed. Our spearman, he killed him. Yowin. Yowin. Yes, I know. That evil white man hurt them. He hurt the children. No. No. Our clever one finished him off. He made it right. 
It's all fair now. Bial. Bial. Not so. Now they want to kill many more. White man want to kill many Gamaigal. No, no more. Sixty-nine. Prescience. The women have told what they know of the killing. The star man has shared what he knows of the plan for retribution. He should not have uttered a word. Of course the plan will never work. Four dozen men with double rations crashing through the bush paths from the cove to Gamai land. What if it does work? Do these gentle friends know already that he will be with this hunting party? They will see him as just one more foe, following the rule of the musket, Jaraba. An old woman, the same one I met under the shade tree so very long ago, raises her hand to hold the speaking. Didrigural, enough. Everyone stops, listens. You will go with them. You will see the way. You will see yourself, eagle. You will come back here. You will speak the truth. Yes, yes, the eagle starman is relieved. The old woman knows the plan. She knows he has to go with the soldiers. She understands his heart is true, yes. She continues in a rasping voice, calling on her ancient prescience, demanding attention with every syllable, no softening of her vision as the truth unfolds. The commander, he will not listen. He will send you away. You will go. 
You will leave us all. You will leave on a ship. Thus said, you will never return. Seventy. I am learning kindness. The smoke has taken all the blue from the sky. Through the haze, the dome is silver grey. Yet still it shimmers. It is a shroud for the past. It is a mantle for the future. Birds dart from tree to tree in a kind of panic. Wait, just wait. The sun is a violent red ball. The air is heavy with blind reason, enclosing freedom, doubting kindness. We are, all of us, born free and rational. Yet if my dreams are inherited, then I am also born with a gateway to the mystical. In this land, with these people, my dreams have been reshaped. The power of my mother's gift lies in new myth and story. I'm not certain I will understand the mythical or if I will lose my dreams again. I begin, as Thomas would, to reformulate the dreams as myth. This is ancient power and wisdom, but never mine to own. I have faced the furies. I've tasted the power of a siren I find inside me a dangerous woman, unleashed on the ocean storms. I lose my dreams. I find them again, here. I know my purpose now. Since the key to the mythical is through this new language, I begin to understand its beauty. If I can place myself lightly inside these stories, they are not mine to hold, never mine to own. I still have no place to land among the stars, yet I do have my dreams. I might see you again there, in the vast space between the stars. I will no longer put a stake in these dreams, these myths, these ancient stories. 
they cannot be contained. Therein lies the power and the wisdom of this ethos that I slowly, so slowly absorb. It enriches my own wanderings. I am learning kindness from Meg and from the women on the point who share so much with me. They tell me we do not measure space or time. From point to point, these are only lines. Our land and skies are inscribed with all our stories. We retell them as we describe their shape, their movement and their memory. There, beyond the lines, there, beyond, in the space between the stars, we keep our power and our mystery. Seventy-one. The space between the stars. A late summer storm is building. The air is alive with a parliament of birds. More white paper slips to flutter and whirl towards the north. I am racing the southerly to the point tonight. Ah, oh, my heart is light at last. I feel my purpose. I taste freedom. I share an evening meal with Bubuk. It is time, she whispers. We hold hands, her warm and clever hands. Outside we build a fire, fanned by the wind. We stand, and I lean my head into the crook of Meg's neck. She fills my heart. My spirit is strong. I race the wind. I am Jarunang. Long legs running, sharp beak pointing. I hold out my arms and almost fly as the wind lifts and gusts toward the headland. I am nearly there. I am here. The sky is open. The night is clear. The stars are patient. Wulgan is out there safeguarding a constellation, dashing steadfast brightening star. He's not sentinel tonight. No need to guard our stars or steal our fire. We remain the keepers of our power. We hold hot coals, safe for all. We make our own fire. I wait for the breeze to catch me. I wait for my desire, my shadow, racing to meet me, traveling faster than the wind. Here comes the night. Here comes my light. 
My amulet, my mantle, my silk cloak glows rich and bright against a tumbling sun. I stand tall on the headland, my hair and cloak streaming. This is my last tableau, my display. It is for us, only for us. I stand proud. I turn slowly. I am ready. We stand tall and ready. I sense your celestial wonder. It beams towards the night sky. You gather me in your arms and kiss me deeply. I arch to feel your body firm, feathers soft, alluring. Your long neck bends to nuzzle mine. I shimmer onto an imminent plane, floating. I open my eyes. I breathe. I climb onto your back. I reach around your neck. You buck and rise under me, bare-backed into the sky, faster than the sun can fall. Your sensual rhythm, your glorious spine, rolling, rocking under me, faster, lover, faster. I am rippling ecstasy, spirit of a man, your body and mine, we rise into the night. Silence. No wind, no rain, no weight. You are eternal, our chosen deep, crimson wonder of southern sky. Forged of darkness and of light, I am a grain of blue-green dust. You are majestic. It is you, Murawong, the space between the stars. I wake. My body wrapped in blue-green silk. I'm soft and plump from sleeping. I stretch. I smile. A feather coronet is woven through my hair. I roll and rise. I release. I bathe. I smell of starlight. I taste of ica, tangy and sweet. Seventy-two. Restless, wandering guardian. My fluency grows. I sit quietly with the women. Together we speak back and forth, 
Sometimes we whisper. Sometimes we laugh or sing. They share their stories. They comfort me with winding tales of our Burumuring, wedge-tailed eagle and starman, long departed, restless, wandering guardian of coastal lands and sea. Far away from us, he nests high alongside distant oceans. He gazes into the faces of those he loves and into our shared night sky. He calls the names of every star. Nula biru nana miyamara nana me gurugura. Nene bayana me guanina me birung mari. Nene bayana me guanina me danoagulang. Tunga gel. Mulumulong waruwal buruanung nala yenele yenele mulumulo mulumulo you watch all the stars so many stars you call their names the many stars you call the names of every star for me. Hunting with your brightest light, desire. Sweet cluster of women with their fire. Ever-flowing river holds our melody. Elders watch the fires as you dance for me. And there, see there, Falling, falling bright, the names of all our children in the night. Seventy-three, forged in love and desire. Sometimes we feast on oysters, gathered, chipped from rocks, themselves like rocks. This precious flesh, roasted on coals, they open, steaming, plump and sweet. We sip, we sup, we laugh, we sing. We sing the oyster song. Win ma marga yan ma bao ngarabao inye. Ngalia yan mangun marga, ngalia marga tiari mangun. Kawago marga baraya mau ninawagulang. I can hear you. I would come to understand you. We could walk and talk, and I would sing for you. Seventy-four. 
Some nights on the point we sit when the moonlight is just so. On the water below, like glittering constellations, all the canoes float with their cooking fires burning. They tell me of Wugan, who covets fire, chases and charms it from the women, then flies high, out of reach, perched alone, a sentinel. Wugan, high in an old dead tree. A strong wind blows in from the south, and the coals flare, burning to black the feathers of Wugan. Flying ever higher until he reaches the great emu, Murawun. In the darkness of the sky, his feathers burst into flame and he can fly no further. There he stays, cleansed by the storm, next to emu as the second brightest star. When his lover visits, in all her majesty, she shares her fire with him. They perch, high on an ever upward growing tree, reaching from the earth to beyond the stars. He shares with her his prescient knowledge of many lifetimes. They cast their spells. She warms him with her desire. She holds her fire, then she leaves. The raven's black coals tumble and fall to the earth, to our land. Thereupon, we find charcoal of the highest quality, pure and everlasting, forged in desire. Seventy-four, the vibrant stars in all their swagger. As I climb the hill, breeze, like a charm, lifts my eyes. White bird, fast on the wing, baby ibis, high and holy. A wisp of cloud, a marbled new moon, a daytime moth, all flying or floating, crystalline fragments in a dome of pastel blue. I give thanks at the edge for the breath of calm, for the light you bring to my body awakened, to my softened heart, to my swirling mind, to my brightened days to the sweet, long nights. We mime the movements. We dream the songs. We never quite know when calm will come. Salve for our spirits. I wait now for darkness 
to show the vibrant stars in all their swagger. 